Welcome back to the 108th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including uh, Miss Claudine Gay is out at Harvard, how there's a new law coming into effect in Illinois that will uh, change the game for EVs, and a interesting article talking about Mr. Menendez and his affairs and how uh, his daughter kind of dodged having to deal with the breaking news about him on the air. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So is Claudine Gay or the Penn president or all of these presidents who testified in front of Congress stepping down, is it actually a good thing? And what I mean by that is if you disagree with their policies, sure, but what I'm getting at is the interaction between government and these universities. Government, the current House, who had the committee that called them in front of them, was trying to directly pressure them to resign. And without that pressure, it may not have happened. The presidents may not have stepped down. Is it okay to have government directly using its power in order to influence the state of affairs of private universities and private companies and things of that nature? Is that within its purview? It's an interesting question. Throw your comments down there in the comment section. Love to hear what everybody thinks about that one. And maybe you have a totally different perspective that I need to hear. So let's jump to our first article that comes from National Review. The headline reads, The important thing is Harvard lost. So what I was talking about with the daily debate and the overall point of this article is to talk about the fact that Harvard and it talks about Penn very briefly, but we're mainly going to focus on Harvard here. Harvard lost. Harvard was standing up against the pressure campaign in order to get rid of Claudine Gay with her uh, comments and statements and position on all of the protests for Gaza and the Palestinians and the language that was being used to talk about Israeli students or Jewish students and the possible anti-Semitism that comes along with that, even though I would think some of those claims are overblown. So not everything that is uh, anti-Israel is anti-Semitic, but there is some anti-Semitic statements that have been brought out, have been said by different people on a whole bunch of different college campuses, and there have been many different responses to that. And the people, a lot of people on the right, don't necessarily like Miss Claudine Gay's responses. And then there was the Rufo story that came out talking about her plagiarism in the past. Um, I'm starting to think that they had that in the back pocket, that they were waiting until the right time in order to release that story. I, I'm just taking a guess because the amount of research probably wasn't extensive so that it had to take a very, very long time to get all of that information, but have it all properly sourced, written out. I think it was definitely done intentionally where they were holding in the back pocket until there was some sort of other scandal or some sort of other comments made by the current president, well, sorry, now it's previous president, and then they could combine that and say there's a large enough push to get her out of the administration in Harvard. But that's just my opinion on it. Maybe I'm being a little bit paranoid. That's always possible. But what the article wants to really get at is we as a people, we as a population, if you have a grievance, you can really let your opinion be heard and it can actually have an effect. 
And this is something that we've talked about many times on the podcast, which is I would rather see a personal pressure campaign, a campaign organized outside of any government or institution or anything that is directly influenced by the public sphere, and it actually effectuate its will, its end goal, through the popular uniting of many different people under one banner of an issue. Just like I would say that boycotting is great when it is a personal decision, not a organized or not, I don't want to say the government, boycotts, but the government saying, you know, you can't have this product because it's not healthy for you. I would rather the people stand up and say, yes, this product isn't healthy. We're going to boycott you until you change it how it is. I don't want the government to use regulations to get rid of people at Harvard and at other universities. So when you see the people standing up for what they believe in and pressuring them, I think that that is a good solution. Now, was this spurred on by some government intervention? Uh, most definitely. But at the end of the day, it still was a popular movement in order to get her out of Harvard from some of the donors, from just a whole bunch of people who were angry with them. So this is how the voices of the people are heard. And I want to jump to the first quote from this article that kind of lays out some of the different perspectives on the right and maybe a few people who have the same kind of opinion on the left. Quote, I have heard it lamented in recent days that despite the scale and consequence of the evidence that was presented against her, the removal of Claudine Gay from the presidency of Harvard University still took far too long. This is undoubtedly true. Had Gay been a student, she would have been removed in 15 seconds rather than the first tranche of documents when the first tranche of documents was made public. Had Gay been a conservative, she would have been summarily launched into the sun. Nevertheless, what seems important about this case is not that it confirmed once again that our elite institutions are playing Calvin Ball, but that despite the best that they could throw at it, Harvard was unable to make the objections to Gay's behavior disappear into thin air. And that is an extremely important point when they get right there at the end, which is if you keep pressing, if you truly believe in something and you know that it, something is wrong, you know that this person has violated ethical codes, you know that this person is not the right representative of the university, the right person to be president of the university, or apply it to any other situation, this is not the right person for that position, and you stand up, your argument is compelling, you get people behind you, and you don't let the attempts of people who, let's be clear, there are always obvious and legitimate objections. And if those legitimate objections don't resonate with you, you keep moving forward. In this case, a lot of the objections were kind of baloney. There were some legitimate, uh, there were some legitimate things where they were saying, oh, well, we don't want to remove uh, the president just because she was uh, standing up for people's free speech on campus. It was the plagiarism thing that would probably knock that over the edge once that came out. But the objections that, no, no, we can't get rid of a woman or a black person because it's either sexist or racist inherently. Those sort of arguments, they fall flat on their face. They're not legitimate. And let's be clear, there could be people who genuinely do want to get out of there, get her out of there because of her race, because of her sex. But that does not mean that everybody who wants her out, who has justifiable reasons for her breach of ethics, 
And it doesn't justify that sort of thinking just because a few, a small part of them may have those terrible, terrible perspectives. And the people, they recognize that those arguments were not strong and they kept pushing through. And if you have a good argument, if you are legitimately basing your observations or, sorry, your perspective on observations from the case that are 100% true, unobjectionable, fall within ethical and moral lines in any situation within your life, then you have a platform to stand on. That doesn't mean you're always going to win, but in this case, I like that they're saying because they kept pushing and they had a strong grounds to do so, they were not easily dismissed. And that is also what happens when cancer culture comes for you. If you roll over, if you are in the right and you roll over in order to placate people coming after you, no matter what side of the aisle they are on, if you are in the right, you believe you're in the right, you stand your ground. Because if they don't have a legitimate grievance against you, then they can't remove you. And if you don't let them cancel you, you can't be canceled. And guess what? The objections in this case were not legitimate. So they couldn't keep standing there and pushing back. And then in a way, I would say this is a canceling, so to speak. So that is where the National Review comes from. That's the point I really wanted to highlight at the very beginning. And there's a few other people or there's a few other quotes that I want to read you. But there's one in particular where you there was so much support behind her or at least resistance to getting rid of her that even President Obama came to her aid. Quote, her critics were attacked and maligned as the wrong sort of people to whom a victory could not possibly be accorded. Even Barack Obama got in on the action lobbying Harvard to stay the course. But Harvard lost. This, in my estimation, is a good sign. The fruits of our institutions are seen far and wide, but decisions such as these are still made at in the rarefied cloister of old. There were just a handful of people on the team that tried to preserve Gay's job, and even fewer on the team that wanted her to go. End quote. And this is one thing where they do mention there are people that wanted her to stay. There are a few, there are a few people who wanted her to stay, not that many, but there were even fewer that wanted her to go. And this is another conversation that we need to have nowadays. There is, and I'm not trying to get rid of the positive arguments in favor of getting rid of her for her ethics violations and so on and so forth. Uh, but there is a growing sense that the loud, loud minority is getting their way. Online, it's the loud minority leftist or right people who just keep on pressuring. They are, you know, small in number, but they are passionate and they get out there and they scream and shout and let it all out. Okay, sorry. I had to I had to start singing there for a second. But my point that I'm getting at is when we have such loud minorities that can exert such control, it is a serious concern to not fall for these traps. In this case, it was a true ethical breach. It was something that should not be allowed by a president of a major university. Now, do I think a majority of Americans actually care? No. I'm, I'm thinking like 60% of people don't care, and then the other 40% is probably split like 15, 20% want to protect her. The other 20, 25% is like, no, we need to get her out of there. A majority of people don't care. But it is a loud minority that stood up for what they believed was right, and they got this 
through. And because we know in this case that she did violate ethics in her class, uh, in her dissertation, and also there's a weird double standard that she's playing at, even though if you don't agree from the left-hand side or just a different political perspective, you could be on the right and not agree that what she was talking about with the protection of certain types of speech on campus. But that, those two things, people felt as though those were worthy enough in order to keep on pushing. And that's when the loud minority is a good thing. But there is time, there are times, when succumbing to the loud minority is not good because they're not actually attacking you or coming after you or pursuing a truly moral, ethical, good end. It's simply malice or they just don't like your perspective, so they want to get you out of somewhere. They want to cancel you. They want to get you fired from your job just because you don't agree with them. So we always have to be very cautious about the loud minority. Just because they're loud doesn't mean they're right. And that's something that we need to keep in mind as we go forward into this new age of projection of speech. People on the internet, and even in real life, because then it can go viral on the internet, people can have an outsized voice compared to the amount of representation or they, that they get within our government or the amount of power that they have within their lives. Things can go viral one tweet from one person who maybe they could say it to 20 people in a day before or 100 people in a day. Now it can reach millions and they will find among those millions the people that agree and they will be super loud and passionate about it. So we have to be ever more careful about this as we go into the future and we need to actually try to find the consensus rather than give in to the people that are simply the loudest and have the most passion. It is our nature to follow the people who have the most passion, who are the most confident, but we need to be a little bit skeptical in this age where it all it takes is one person getting a few little retweets here, having a point that semi-resonates with people and it can snap right off. So, that's what I wanted to talk about with this National Review article. Now we're going to jump to a different one uh, from the Daily Cost. And the headline reads, New EV Charging Takes Effect in Illinois. So this one, it's talking about the EV economy. And we know that it's coming. We know that EV cars are being pushed in a whole bunch of different ways, whether it be through subsidies, whether in California saying they can no longer, car companies can no longer sell uh, gas cars and they can only sell EVs after a certain point. Uh, Biden pushing for more renewable sources and more EV production capacity at some of the major uh, car manufacturers like Ford and GM. So we know the EV world is most definitely coming. But this new bill that's going into effect in Illinois is something that I was, I read it, and one of the arguments that the author made really resonated, and another one where they were just describing it, my first reaction was, whoa, 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 no, 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 please do not do that. So I'm just going to read the second paragraph of this article first. The law is fairly readable. It addresses many types of housing, but... This diary will keep score of single-family homes. The gist is simple. All new single-family detached house construction is required to have the appropriate 240-volt wiring installed for at least one parking space. That makes the space EV compatible. The law does not require any charger to be installed, so a charger or EVSE, electric vehicle supply equipment, can be installed at any time the homeowner, the homeowner, and then they curse well pleases or not at all. So when you hear that, you're probably like, Alex, why, why do you think this is worth 
having a conversation about. And the, I'll tell you what the argument from the author was, or at least the, the something that they said that resonated, which is the beautiful thing about our federalist system is we can have a whole bunch of different states that experiment with different laws that take on different platforms, new ideas, and test them out within their state. And that is a beautiful thing because then we can see what actually works and extrapolate up to the federal government, or we can see what is absolutely going to fail, and we can leave it in the dustbin of history. But this sort of thing, and let's be clear, I do not live in Illinois, so I do not have a personal grievance with this in that it personally affects me. But it is something that I want to talk about because why? Why are you forcing people to do this? And the author explains that it's a low-cost function. It's a low-cost thing to have it uh, wired up so that at least a charging station could be put in the future. They're saying hundreds of dollars. And maybe, maybe that's fair. I would say right now it's probably closer to a few thousand dollars to have the capabilities there. Imagine that you don't even have 240-volt capability. And let's be clear, I am not a person who builds houses, so I don't know if 240-volt is standard and you have to have that going into the house. But imagine that you don't have that going into the house and you live a mile up the road and now you have to dig an entirely new trench in order to get that capacity wire up to your house because you don't want to have poles that go across the top of your driveway. You want to have it hidden and it's underground. So all these different things, I, I know it sounds it sounds like I'm pulling things out of my butt. And to be fair, I technically am because, like I said, I am not an electrician. I am not a contractor. I do not know whether this 240 volt is 100% standard. And when they say that it has to be wired for a parking space, that it's just adding a few extra feet of cable. But even then, in man hours, that's a few extra hundred dollars. And I know that doesn't sound like much. When you're building a house, these things rack up very, very quickly. But it is the fact that you are not allowed to determine this as a part of your house or not. If you're never, ever, ever going to buy an EV, you know that for a fact. Imagine you're 50 years old, you've only had gas vehicles, you only had diesel vehicles, and you don't ever want an EV. You're never going to do it. Then you're going to say, well, why, why do I have to pay this extra $100? Why do I have to pay this extra $500? I, I could go to gas and diesel for a few weeks you know, for my job. So these sort of things where you actually limit the possibilities of what people can do, that's already a problem. But then also you're increasing the financial cost on them because you're telling the contractors that are building those houses they have to put it in there, for, therefore they have to charge the, the homeowners for that process. And you may be saying, well, Alex, hold on, there are a whole bunch of regulations that already go into housing, house building. They have to meet certain standards. Yes, those are all safety standards. And yes, they may cost a little bit more money, but they are for your safety. And to be clear, I don't love the fact that there are always super stringent safety standards either. If you want to make an unsafe house, as long as you are aware of the risk, you can go right ahead and do it. But when things collapse and fall apart, you know, don't go crying to the insurance agency for money because you took on the risk of doing it. Don't complain to everybody else. Just deal with it and move on. But if we're really going to have this argument in the dominion of regulations that affect people, I would be I'm much more in favor of safety regulations that actually ensure the house is okay, that they're not going to hurt themselves, rather than something that they may not even use 
and that they are demanding go in there, even though it has no effect on the safety of the people. And if they don't have EVs, it doesn't improve their life. If they do have EVs, sure, it improves their life. But guess what? When they're building their house and they have EVs, they're going to ask to have that put in there anyway. So this is why it's extremely, extremely frustrating. It feels like the state government leeching, jumping too far into the lives of its everyday citizens who are trying to build homes. And yes, I know it's a small financial cost, but even small financial costs can run things over when it comes to the building of a house. Uh, sometimes people are paying for it bit by bit. They, are, they take out a mortgage, obviously, but some people, they're paying for it bit by bit as it gets built out. Maybe they don't have that extra $500, so the contractor couldn't finish the garage. I don't know. It just it feels as though it's an ever-creeping increase in the power of government to mandate things be in your house because it is a part of their social agenda. And that's the other thing. That's what's also frustrating. It's just another way to push their social agenda. Now, there is a counter-argument, which I did find semi-persuasive to my point earlier, that some people, who they may never, ever, ever use a gas car, and they will not think that this EV uh, output, this 240-volt output for one space in their house or a parking spot or in their garage uh, those people will never see a true value in this add-on. So they're basically paying for something they're not going to use. The author did say that this could actually even help resale value because there is a possibility that somebody who has an EV car, they want the house that they're going to buy to already have a EV charging station so they don't actually have to pay contractors to come in or waste time to do it. They can just have it right there and ready to go. At least this would allow the infrastructure to already be there for those people to install a charging wall. And I do think that that is a valid, valid kind of concern, in my opinion. That's one of those things that if the resale value is going to go up because of it, then maybe some people could see that as a overall benefit. But there's still the counter-argument that not all people are going to want to resell their house. They're not going to ever get an EV, and they're not going to want to sell their house on to anybody. They may just want to give it to their kids. And also, while the author does repeatedly say the EV revolution is coming and it won't stop, I don't know if the EV revolution is coming and it won't stop. I don't know if we're actually going to have a completely EV car fleet or we're going to have a, just a larger proportion of the car fleet be EV, and it's still going to be mixed with diesel, hydrogen, and gas. So this is something that doesn't necessarily suit everybody, and to pretend that every single place is going to need one of these in the future, and that's why you're going to have this 240 volt put into every new house, the only way that's going to happen is if you mandate it from government down. So if they're preparing for it in that way, that scares me just a little bit. But that is me being, like I said earlier today, I'm maybe a little bit paranoid. It is me being a little bit paranoid, a little bit cynical. I'm not saying they're going to do that. I have no idea. But if California does it, I wouldn't be surprised if Illinois and New York start to do it here soon, especially with places like the big city that are already restricting uh, what kind of cars and when cars can come into downtown and things like that. So we're going to jump to one more story that comes from The Daily Wire, and the headline reads, MSNBC segment goes sideways. New Menendez allegations surface while his daughter is guest hosting, which was, it was honestly, it was a really, I watched the clip. It was absolutely hilarious. 
So the Tuesday segment on MSNBC's Deadline White House got awkward when new allegations surfaced against embattled Senator Robert Menendez and his daughter was guest hosting the show. So this is this honestly shows the the nature of the political world and the interaction between the media apparatus, the people who are in politics, the uh, you know charities, organizations, things like this. And let's be clear, I'm not saying it's on one side or the other. It's on both sides. Everybody has, I don't want to say everybody, but a lot of people have family members who are somewhere else in the complex around politics once they get involved in politics because, you know, some people perceive it as a way to get close with, so maybe some people at MSNBC were saying, oh yeah, well, you know, we live in New Jersey, uh, we like Menendez, maybe we could hire on his, his daughter and we can be close, we can go over for dinner sometime, we can have some turkey, some pasta, a real Italiano dinner over there, and then we can uh, discuss how we want to interact in the future and work together and things like that. Now, I'm not saying it's 100% like that. That may seem overly cynical, but even just rolling in the same circles, it's more than likely that people who are trying to see a path forward, like the kids of politicians or the kids of media people, are going to cross-pollinate in these worlds that interact so frequently, and they're going to move up in those stages. But then, if you're in the media and you're a parent or uh, your brother, someone else that you know or related to, is uh, also someone who the media is focusing on, it can get a little bit awkward. Quote, Alice Menendez was sitting in for regular host Nicole Wallace, and just before the show went to a commercial break, she announced that the breaking news update was imminent. We have to take a quick break, and we'll be back with some breaking news right after this, she said. Then they return when they returned, however, MSNBC host Ari Melber was in the anchor's chair to deliver the news. And yes, he goes on to talk about the new indictments coming down, or sorry, the, the new allegations coming down against Mr. Menendez here. And I just the there's the thing is he does a really good job of just kind of rolling with the punches, it feels like. And she doesn't look too concerned as she's leaving. I think they just told her, hey, we have some breaking news. And then as they went off the air, they're like, okay, we're going to switch you out because we don't want to put you in a weird position where you have to comment on these allegations against your dad. But it it was just hilarious to me. And the reason I really wanted to talk about this, besides to talk about the cross-pollination of the media and the political class, is it highlights the fact that in this world where there is such cross-pollination, you're going to run into these hard, how to put it, these hard moments, these points where you have to put something above your family. And I think that that is a value that is something that people really need to think about. If you go into this world, if you go into being a congressman, a congresswoman, uh, representing the country, working for the country, at some point you may have to put the country above your family, the needs of the country, the needs of the district, the needs of multiple people above that of your family. And I feel like we're in an age where the higher values the duty towards something bigger, in this case her job, or at least the truth in reporting facts as they are, it should have superseded the fact that it is her father. I understand that it puts her in an awkward position, and if I was in that position, I would probably argue, no, 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 I don't want to do that to my dad. But from an outside point of view, and from a person who does believe in higher duty, 
I think that that's something that we need to really reevaluate. We look at a lot of countries around the world and we wonder why the populace continues to fight on when their leaders are being uh, terrible, but their leaders are using national language and they are using this idea of aspiring towards a larger duty goal, a certain honor. And we see them continue to fight in, in order to respect in order to serve, in order to give up for something larger than themselves. If we lose that here in America, we are a country of individuals with an overarching network of social responsibilities, morality, uh, ethical values, and a sense of duty to the larger nation that protects, that allows us to have those individual freedoms. If we lose that overarching net over the individual, I feel as though we are going in a downward spiral. And this is just a small example, and I know I'm extrapolating pretty far here, but that's one of the things I thought when I read it, which is we have lost perspective a lot. Not everybody has lost perspective on duty to something bigger. And that's why I think Christianity is still very much prospering because some people may have lost faith and duty in the country, but they still have faith and the sense of duty for the God that they believe in. So it's essentially shifting that need that they may have to serve a higher purpose to another location. Maybe that's why there are still a good amount of Christians in this United States who don't necessarily believe in the American vision, but still believe in the Christian vision. I don't know. It's an interesting thought process. I'll have to explore more at some point in the future. But we're going to get past all of my ramblings, all my mumbo-jumbos, all my political thoughts, and we're going to jump into something positive, which is our daily delight. And this one is big dogs gently treating toddlers at Lowe's are the idol ambassadors of their breeds, and it comes from Parade Pets. So they go on at the very beginning to talk about how, you know, big dogs, they get a bad rap, but no, they can be gentle little guys too. Quote, on a recent shopping trip, two small kiddos knew immediately that they had found furry friends. This mom with her two well-trained and beautiful dogs happily took a moment to share their fluffy love. And there's a video that goes into these guys meeting, absolutely adorable. You see these big dogs they are like, okay, you know what? You know what? We're going to let these two little ones, they may be a little bit smaller than us, but we're going to let them play and have a little bit of fun, and we're going to get a little bit of joy out of it too. And maybe we can take a lesson from that in the society, and we can all decide that we can have a little bit of fun together whenever we're hanging out rather than focusing on the things that make us different, like, you know, species in this case. So with all that said, if you want to see the video from this article or read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, as well as Podvine, and the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. A little bit more of a rambling off the top of the head, not so many quotes, uh, things that I'm reading, stuff like that. So with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.